for the Dad Bod Rap Pop with your hosts, Timon Carter, David Ma, and Nate LeBlanc. Three underground rap nerds walked into a bar. An argument ensued about who the goats are. The seed was a thought that would turn into a pod. Now fans worldwide say, not a bad job, the ad hoc cab squad Who chronicles the vanguard of hip-hop at large Rap taste slacked off, don't need to be mad, dog. Look no further, it's the dad bod Rap pod Podcasting live from San Jose, California It's the dad bod rap pod I am one of your hosts, Jim One Also known as Damone Carter in my regular life On a regular Monday that's what they call me. They call him David Ma. What's happening, man? Hey, man, David Ma, aka David Ma. Um, really good to <laughs> really good to see you, man. Um, we just had a terrible, terrible heat wave last week. So uh, today it was sprinkling a little bit, and I feel like it really improved my mood. So I'm super down with this overcast right now. Yes, sir. I, I've definitely been feeling the overcast vibes. Uh, as lifelong San Joseans, we know that this is short lived. Um, right. That we will not feel moisture from the air for like another six months so uh we're 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 living it up what's your uh what's your go-to and this doesn't have to be specific to rap what is your go-to kind of rainy day overcast day music vibes Oof. um atmosphere's overcast no it's good Um, (laughs) it was right there (laughs) (laughs) I, i could not let that one go um i would say probably portishead dummy i mean that's that's yeah, sort of the man. go-to album for that i mean yeah, that, man. that literally sounds like this weather you know it sounds like cold frigid weather uh, absolutely and 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 um, dark clouds and you know um sprinkles of uh, rain um what about you what, what's your go-to um <laughs> sort of rainy weather album uh i really like cuban links oh, uh, i mean I, you know there's a song rainy days on there but I, right. I think in general, it all has this feeling of like the sun not being out and kind of like a grayed out uh, New York skyline is what I imagine mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. anyway. So that 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 has always been a, a rainy day favorite of mine. But like I was saying, we we rarely have fucking rainy days. So totally. it, it's all theoretical. I listen to it when it's like 90 degrees and go, this might sound good on a rainy day, but who knows? Um, right, right. <laughs> The other but, one uh, I, would, I would say would be Cannibal Ox Cold Bane. Oh, very very yeah. sort of gray, overcast vibes for that album. Absolutely. Um, which I need to crack that one open. I haven't listened to it since we had Bastard on the program. But um, right. it seems like that album, which I guess just turned 21. Wow. Um, it can buy a beer or maybe two. Um but yeah, now I'm like, damn, I, I was legit a whole ass adult when that came out. Wait, so. did that turn 21? I thought Labor Days just turned 21. Was it both? Oh, maybe. Maybe it was the same year. Possibly. Okay. What yeah, was 21 okay. years ago? 01? 02? 01? I don't know. Time is slipping away. He's like, I, yeah. he's like, I'm a professor uh, in the humanities <laughs> department, not, uh, not mathematics. Um, all understandable uh we thank y'all for rocking with us this week hopefully enjoyed our special special episode our high road day hijinks episode that dropped um on monday of this week been podcasting overtime man just i know churning them out man as we as we uh draw closer to 250 
which is actually a misnomer because we do like these weird 0.5 episodes. So by the time we get to uh, the end of this year, we'll have really done like 255 or something like that. Not that anyone is counting besides us. Besides um, us yeah. But yeah, we, we, are, we are here. We have a dope interview lined up for y'all on the other side of this segment. But I wanted to bring in a, you know, a very hot conversation. We're not so much a hot take podcast. We try to be like weird and nuanced about things um, right. most of the time. But every so often, something comes across our desk and kind of embroils Twitter. And uh, we want to talk about it a little bit here on the pod. Um, Dave, you remember when we had um, Paul Cantor on to talk about the uh, the book he wrote about Mac Miller? Absolutely, um, absolutely. Paul, great guy, um, great stories, and you know, great, great um, journalist. So it was really good to get a a moment of his time, he's very gracious with it. But yeah, and he spoke of sort of the reaction to uh, his uh, Mac Miller mm-hmm. book and, and things like that. So I certainly remember that. Yeah, which um, when I first read the article that I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up here, um, I was like, oh no, do you not know how how crazy uh, Mac Miller fans can be? Um, right. Yeah, and it was like a cautionary tale because Paul went as far as to say like his family was threatened and this and that, which is like the the real ugly side of the internet. But um, uh, you know, friend of the pod, um, whose name I'm forgetting, I don't have to edit this in. Hold on, friend of the pod, Jason Buford, um, wrote an article for Tablet Mag entitled "The Painful Mediocrity of White Boy Rap." Uh, subtitle from Blue Slide Park to Jack Harlow rap fans can't shake their enchantment with inoffensive uninspired whiteness um, I invite everybody to go check out the article on tablet um, or if you've been a part of our Twitter timeline at all you've probably seen some of the discourse around it um, to paraphrase I, I think Jason makes very compelling points about how um mediocre white rappers get celebrated and i think i've I've taken several shots at jack harlow on this program it will continue to do so uh but i think um i think the the general gist of the article um is correct but dave uh jay goes a little hard goes a little hard on mac miller and and that definitely rub some people the wrong way you you read the piece what were what were your thoughts on kind of reading it i mean i'm more of a mild to medium take guy in general (laughs) yeah Um, yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. but i i'm not sure why this article needs to exist um it feels it feels very clickbaity right i mean um i agree with the original premise sure i mean you couldn't you this article could have article could have been written about asher roth or bubba sparks or whatever but yeah, you're gonna you're gonna pick a, a dead artist who can't defend himself. But also, um, I just don't like a lot of the examples. I feel like it's he's it's a little um, it contradicts itself a little bit. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a Mac Miller apologist, but like, I mean, I've grown to see his talent. Like, I I feel like he's a soulful white guy. You know what I mean? Okay. I've, okay. I've always said that, and I don't like a lot of his songs. I like a couple of them. A couple of them. Um, he has co-signs from artists that I do respect, which are mentioned in the article, mainly um, Earl and uh, Primo and Cameron and then Staples. Yeah. But I mean, it feels like it feels like 
Buford just really fixates on Mac Miller way too much. It feels like a Mac hit piece. I mean, the whole thing was about him. And it's like, you can talk about Mac's, um, Mac being a fake intellectual or a fake progressive, but you know, you can't fake charisma, you know what I mean? And he's a charismatic dude. Um, I think he was very musical in his approach. Mm-hmm. And um, and then Jason also pulls out a couple like just really whack rap lyrics of Mac and is like, oh, like one of these lyrics. And it's like, you can literally do that with every rap. You song, can cherry you pick know? bad lyrics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Chuck D has probably some terrible lines. You know what I mean? Biggie right. has some terrible lines. I mean, there's lots of embarrassing moments of some of your greatest rappers, but I think he sort of glosses over the fact that Mac, you know, talks about his feelings of being inadequate and being depressed yeah. and talks about his addiction and things like that matter. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm currently seeing someone who's a little bit younger than me and she's like, I love Mac. I grew up with him mm-hmm. in college. I listened to him mm-hmm. in college. And that I can see why that resonates with so much, especially with people of the younger generation. And I forgot how, I forgot how old Buford is, but he comes off not like a young listener. And then he mentions a couple other points about like um, YouTube videos of high schoolers talking about Mac. And it's like, why do you care what high schoolers think about Mac? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't care what a high schooler thinks about Chuck D, you know? Right. So I just, I don't really get it. And some of the other points that he made where he was like early on in, in Mac's career, he said this, this, and this. And I think it sort of overlooks the fact that early on in Mac's career was also early on in Mac's life. So he's going to mm. rap from a, from the worldview of a 17 year old, 16 year old, you know what I mean? So I, yeah. I, I really don't get it. He also mentions Mac doesn't rap about being Jewish enough. It's kind of all <laughs> over the place. I don't get it. Like p- part of the article just sputters and surely I, I, I agree with the premise. I mean, I'm, I'm not a Jack Harlow fan and, but this article could have been written, written about Vanilla Ice. It just feels so outdated. Like it's like a piece about women rappers are just as good as their male counterparts type thing. Mm. I, don't, I don't really get why it, it, it even exists. And yeah, I mean, that, that was sort of my original uh, takeaway from it. I just, uh, I just feel like, um, I feel like this article is one of, you know, you know that meme where it's like somebody says something and then um, it's a person at um, a fast food place and they're like, Somebody ordered the attention today. Somebody ordered the attention today. That's what it feels like. It feels like a contrived piece for attention. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I'm not here to diss anybody's sort of, I'm not here to diss anybody's journalism. I mean, especially if it's an opinion piece. Right. But um, that was my takeaway. Okay. And what about yours, man? I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I, I, I read it and I was immediately, um, you know, again, just, Frightened for for Jason and his uh and and the and the blowback that was coming like everything that I saw, the discourse that I saw form around it, I was like, yeah, this is very a very predictable kind of rage inducing thing. Um, I have a little bit of a soft spot for somebody who is willing to uh take on investigate like a sacred cow, and I feel like sure, and I feel like. Mac Miller became one of those and, and there's something about about an early death right that really encapsulates someone and kind of like makes them um it deifies them in a way uh sure, especially if sure. you die young right mm-hmm. and I feel like um because of that this would have been a great piece I think if Mac was still alive 
I think mm-hmm. if, if he was still alive and it's like, hey, I'm, I'm challenging the notion that you should be as famous as you are, which is a thing for me as a, as a rapper, as a black person, I do look around and go, mm-hmm. X white rapper should not be that famous. I've been, I've been on record and we've, we've fought 12 rounds about, I think Action Bronson has outsized fame and popularity because he is white. Uh, yeah. he, he is actually not mentioned in this article, nor is your old Drew. Um, right, right. yeah, but I, so the, the, the general premise and phenomenon, I say, yes, the, the target, um, I don't know if it came across as contrived to me. I do feel like uh, it does seem like, uh, Buford has held on to these feelings about Mac Miller as an artist for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it's, it, it kind of detracts from the overall point in that. I agree gets too deep into the the sins of, of Mac Miller. And honestly, I think let some folks off off the hook. Um, right. I have grown to appreciate the music of Action Bronson. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been fair to say, hey, here's another artist, you know, right. who's good, but who who got his his origin story from a black artist, just like your old Droog. Mm-hmm. It didn't sound exactly like Nas in the beginning. Do we even know who he is, right? That's, so yeah. I do think there were other targets like living people who better ex- ex- exemplified what he was talking about. And then there was this interesting thing where like uh, Travis Scott also caught some strays in this piece. Right. And right. I was like, wait, did he mean Travis Barker? Right. <laughs> like, like, this, is just a, this is a black mediocre rapper. I don't it almost serves to invalidate what he was originally saying. It's almost absolutely. like black mediocre rappers can make it too. I that, Absolutely they can. And I was just going to bring that up as, an, as, an, as another example. I mean, there's, there's a whole facet of rap that I think I'm not really into and they're, and they're famous and they're black. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and he, he also, as another counterpoint, he brings up Post Malone as, as another white rapper. And it just, that just felt really inauthentic to me. Like, uh, or disingenuous to me because it's like nobody thinks of Post Malone as a fucking MC, you know what I mean? Uh, like, why even bring yeah. it up? Yeah. Also, Jeff Weiss uh, already uh, did that drive by, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> and and I guess that's kind of the difference, right? Like when Jeff Weiss lined up um, Post Malone, um, it was kind of thorough and it stayed on on one course. You know Absolutely. what I mean? I, I think um, some of the the sub points kind of got away. And, and then I, I do believe that um, you do have to be careful because there's certain artists that like mean something to people. There was a time where you couldn't say anything critical about Tupac and because people would want to fight you. Like people right. really, there was a time, I mean, it's not so much like that anymore, but and we can have a debate and we can get Thomas Hobbs on here to have a debate again about uh, the music of Tupac. But uh, it, it's one of those things where like um, there are certain artists who are beloved. And even if you don't get it, you got to be careful about um, who's, whose name you kind of uh, wipe your shoes on. And especially if they pass. And I don't think enough time has passed. I think in the end, um, the mediocre music that Tupac made, people can talk about it now. You couldn't right, talk about right. it in the five-year window around when he died. That was like right. not an appropriate point to be making, even if it was true, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I do think that there'll be a day in time if Mac Miller's music is truly timeless, we'll be talking about him in five years hence. Um, if he is as inflated as Jason Buford is, is alleging, 
then we kind of won't. And then that'll be a time to be like, see, you know, we reflected mm -hmm. on this. Um, but I do want to make a weird point about Jack Harlow on uh, Open Mic Eagles. I believe it's on Secret Skin. He has like 12 shows. But on the one <laughs> show where he talked to Rhymefest, Rhymefest was like, Jack Harlow's cool. Like he made, he made his, he's like, he said something to the effect of like, he made his money off of like wordplay in this and that. And I thought that was really interesting because I'm almost one of those people that is like, oh, is he a plant? Is, just, is somebody writing his stuff? He's just a mm -hmm. guy who looks the part. Um, so I'm even willing to say that even though I, I detest him at almost Post Malone levels, um, that I could be wrong about that. I, I could right. be wrong about Jack Harlow. Also, probably not. Um, but but yeah, uh, very very interesting article. We encourage you to uh, to check it out. Form your own opinions. Not a diss on Jason Buford. We're just he put not out a, a hot take. Well. Yeah, um, yeah. If anything, like like you were saying, I mean, I I respect his his um, you know um, willingness to put himself out there, and you know everyone has a right to their opinion, um, and you know he's a serious journalist, so I respect that as well. So it's no diss on him. I just disagree with the approach of the whole thing. And it, it just, uh, it just uh, left a bad taste in my mouth. And I typically don't even care about stuff like that. I know. I, we, got know? Some, we got some hot takes on a hot take from you, which is uh, <laughs> typically you don't give a shit. So um, yeah, it's definitely uh, somewhat of a polar, polarizing piece, but I, I invite folks to check it out. And, and also, you know, I invite further scrutiny of the place of the white rapper in hip hop. I think it's a it's a question that's worth bringing up um, early and often if we look at the history of kind of like how white folks have moved in black music, you know, right. for time immemorial. Um, so, yeah, yeah. If you if you want some some fun incendiary reading next time you're on the toilet, check that out. Uh, Dave, we got not one but two uh call albums on friday night right, right. Um, crazy crazy uh what is it it's languish arts languish and... arts and woeful studies um they're uh, you know it's two albums but it's more like two sides of the same coin right I mean, okay not yeah. just like the i mean you can tell by the cover art but um just i guess in in terms of the uh the themes that are running throughout it as well um, but I, I do, I do want to admit that I didn't sit down and just listen to it fully like I, like it deserves, like most Ka albums, because they're so intricate and detailed. Yeah. Yeah. But I listened to both, you know, all the way through. They're they're relatively short. Um, you know, love Ka to death, and I'm, and I think we talked about this last time, but I am getting a little Ka fatigue. I mean, yeah. the um, the beginning of language arts is just a bunch of whispers and whooshes. You know, if you're not paying, <laughs> if you're not paying attention, yeah, you know yeah, I mean? you got to tap in. Yeah, by, by the time like by the time a, a hi-hat comes in, I'm dying for it, you know, so <laughs> I so it does it, it treats its listener with respect and maybe a little bit a little bit too much respect at this point. Like it's certainly not something I'm going to throw on um, unless I'm intent on giving it a very full listen. And certainly if I did, mm. it would be it would be as great as any other call album. I'm just getting a little bit fatigued um maybe just one maybe just languish arts or or woeful songs. or or the the best 10 tracks between those because basically they're right. i think they're two 10 track albums exactly. um the answer to that is so people gotta buy both right <laughs> right I like, I like woeful studies more if i had to pick, did you okay. only because the beginning comes in a little bit harder um especially yeah. the 
especially the first third of Woeful Studies, I mean, there's some drums on it. And I'm not one of those people who, who diss music without drums. I actually love the, the whole drumless revolution. But um, there, he raps a little bit faster. It's a little, yeah. you know, it's a little less, um, you know, windswept sort Hush of tones. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, but again, right. uh, no, no diss to Ka. I think he's one of the, the greatest writers around and I'm a huge, huge fan. It's just, um, it's just a little bit much sometimes. I'm, I'm getting like Mount Marcy vibes where it's like, this is great, but not right now, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's there's other things that you you might prefer to listen to. I I definitely, I enjoy languish arts, um, but I do think it depends on how and when you listen to it. Um, mm-hmm. What Ka is selling you, what he's, he's giving the fan is um, intricacy. Sure. Um, you know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. what I love about him, and and maybe this was present on the last record, even though I know we kind of were kind of mild on it, um, is he can turn a phrase like in a two, four bar segment and say something really profound and also totally. it rhymes in, in the classic cause style, right? He's like he got he has a style and an approach to how he sets up his uh his mouse traps, let's say, of oh, punchlines and such. Absolutely. But um, he can say so much uh, while saying so little. I feel like oh, there's a yeah. lot of rappers that that use a lot more words and don't um, and don't and don't hit home and get to the point. So I, I feel like um, he's he's like a niche within a niche. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like you Absolutely. really have to be wanting to really listen to some deep lyrical. Whereas if we compare him to another person who who often raps and un, under his breath is um is rock marciano right. um he, he'll still throw you a bone he'll still mm-hmm. give you like mm-hmm. here's kind of a here's something that approaches a jam on on the elephant man's bones he, he has a couple joints that are like this right. is almost boppish right a little bit. right uh, well, yeah i mean caught is definitely far end of the spectrum in that regard to to your point you know what i mean yeah. No, totally. It's 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 the deep end of the pool. It's the quiet end of the pool. Uh, <laughs> but definitely want to spend some more time with both those records as we round the corner towards uh, the album of the year discussions, which um, Suge LeBlanc has ordained that we are going to cut it off in November. So, yeah, I mean, I've been pushing for that for a minute. I mean, I yeah. don't know why. Yeah. I mean, we talked about the sort of irrationality ra- surrounding that, I think. Um, what are you going to do about albums that drop in December? Like, what are we going to just forget them? What are we going to, you know? Yeah, yeah. Have you had enough time to digest them and, and like, rate them properly? Um, I'm here for it. I'm wondering, one wonders. Uh, I think we may end up with the same problem, though, is that by the time we get to next year, um, sometimes it's hard to remember. Like, it's even hard to if remember, we're, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, what, what came out? Um, I think there's a new uh, Rap for a record in the works. Maybe the the one that could shake up the album of the year rankings is this uh, Freddie Gibbs project, Oof. Um, yeah. which, yeah. Have you heard, you, you have your, your ear to the, to the journalistic streets. Have you heard anything about this record? I mean, I just, um, not, not through, not through my journalistic channels. I mean, probably just through Twitter, but um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I heard, I heard him drop uh, to name drop basically what he's working on. And, and um, I don't remember specifics, but if it, if it is what it claims to be, I think yeah. this is going to be outstanding. We gonna see. I'm gonna I'm gonna say something here. 
um, and, and y'all might come for me like Jason Buford. Um, I think that Freddie Gibbs sounds best when he is rapping over stuff that nerds like. If you listen to early Freddie Gibbs, when he was trying to kind of fit into the Maybach music, mm-hmm. you know, kind of trappier vibes, he's just ordinary. He's doing mm-hmm. things that you've heard other people do and it's okay. Um, lyrically, it's not, it's not a, I don't know. There are people who do that better. I think when yeah. he gets into different types of niche production, he sounds great because he's bringing a texture and a vibe that's not usually um, in those spaces. And I think, I think that's what's made us love him. It's records like, you know, Bandana, Pinata, Absolutely. Um, Alfredo. I'm getting Absolutely. slight vibes that he's going to try to go a little bit more. I don't know what you want to call it um other than mainstream uh and i feel like it's kind of the approach that benny the butcher took on um uh he's got right. so I, many I, records i know i can't i can't even, i know exactly what album you're talking about um yeah. it was his uh big big rock release um right lord of mercy we're experts at this shit y'all i promise you <laughs> this um, be edit, editing this one right? yeah I'll, I'll edit in uh i'll just be like is it is it the plugs we met one two seven it's one of those is um, it? okay yeah but it, it it just i remember us having this conversation about like um you know many trying to do it on that level i remember uh max b um a great writer friend of the program was just, you know, thought it was trash because it kind of betrayed what we grew to like about Benny the Butcher and why right. he was, he stood out and was special. Like he was just kind of being ordinary. Mm-hmm. That's my fear for this Freddie Gibbs record. I hope he proves me wrong. I hope he's like, you know, coming out the gate with some, some real right. fire. Um, well, I think, I think with both, both those examples, it's how they interact with the music. I mean, I still think mm-hmm. Benny's writing on that album's great. And I think yeah. Freddie, Freddie's writing and rapping is sort of the same and on all those projects too. I think it's just mm-hmm. sort of how, how the production um, surrounds. Uh, yeah. 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 Just kind of like the, the scene, if you will, that these guys are put into. So I, I hope it, uh, I hope it comes together. I'll say this. Uh, Freddie Gibbs is on a short list of rappers who are like legit funny. I think him, oh. him and Vince Staples are like legit funny so i've loved the uh the promo that he's done for this album and uh let's see if it measures up but uh there you have it uh new car records for y'all to digest incendiary articles on the internet um and we await the new freddie gibbs so let's let's go to an interview now dad bod Rap pod. For me, it came from like looking at my looking at the relationship between my father and my mother. I mean, she was the one who was warm and you know like friendly to me, the one that I felt some kind of emotional ties to. And my father was you know just the opposite. He's like a cold motherfucker in his school. You know, he never uh, uh, really like showed any signs of emotion. A vet of unpleasant and misery. Job blessed didn't digest what they fed us in history. Not too nice, see the true stripes of medicine fishing. Don't waste ink, I'm succinct. It's measured efficiency. Felt I had a curse first when I was bad at cursing. Baby sister named Nia, so since six, I had a purpose. Writings I drew excited my core. I bought a surface. It comes from these men that accompany, though they call them verses. Every mention is for her ascension. May not be a good man.
What's good, DBRP listeners? It's your boy, Dim One, here to tell you about a dope festival coming up on Saturday, October 1st in Ontario, California. It is called the Happiness of Pursuit Festival. Headlining this year's festival is Reason. The Far Side will be there. Sci High, Sugar Free, Ninth Wonder, Locksmith, Open Mike Eagle, and many, many more. The festival features three stages of live music, a graffiti section, vendor village, and much, much more. And by much, much more, what they mean is the Dad Bod Rap Pod will be in the building. So, uh, you know, we'll be there doing interviews. You should be there, too. Get your tickets now at Eventbrite or at thopfest.net. That's thopfest.net. And make sure to follow the festival at thopfest for updates and more information. We'll see y'all in SoCal. Dad Bod Rap Pod. Every week we talk to people who are moving and shaping hip-hop culture. This week is no different. Joining us in Zoom, we have Lewis Logic. What's happening, man? Hello. How are you? Uh, a lot, actually. Yeah? Are, are you a fan yeah. of the Z-Way program? Is that what I'm saying? Your, your mug? Oh, my wife works on Z-Way. Oh, is that right? Okay. Oh, yeah. that's super dope. She's a cinematographer and, and a camera operator, and so she shoots on Z-Way. For oh, like man. sketch pieces and uh, camera operates, yeah. Oh man, that's that's super dope. Love, love me some Z-Way. Um, talk to us a little bit about what inspired you to start rapping. Who were who were the the MCs that got you wanting to do this? <sighs> the first rap song that I ever heard and said oh i gotta get that was probably roxanne roxanne by utfo mm-hmm. and that was the first the first recorded music that i ever owned personally it didn't belong to my big brothers i have two big brothers and two big sisters so i'm the baby in my family and my big brothers were big classic rock heads metal heads as you can see, like I did not fully escape that. Huh. Um, but UTFO, that was the first time I heard a rap record. And yeah, I was like, how do I get that? I need that. And then my mother took me to a local record store and I bought a 12 uh, inch of Roxanne Roxanne. And then, damn, I'm dating myself. I'm old as shit. <laughs> a little bit if you could go to buy Roxanne Roxanne yeah yeah I'm, I'm there with yeah you. yeah um and I mean at the time like a record store was the only option there was no cd store you know eight tracks were still around but kind of falling out of favor and then I got a, a 45 of jam on it by Nucleus but at that time, I just was a fan and I wanted to break dance and do graffiti. I think I was just really becoming enamored by the culture, but I didn't see myself as having a place as a rapper. 
And even when I when I started listening to rap of like the early like mid mid to late eighties, I still didn't think there was a place for me in it. I was just a listener. I, I mean I wished I could do it, but that seemed otherworldly to me because I grew up in a white neighborhood. I was adopted by a white family. There were no black people where I lived. Like I was just so far removed from the idea of, of how rap gets made. It, it seemed like it came from an alien planet to me. And, and I had just discovered the artifacts. Uh, but the, the earliest records that really made me feel like maybe there's a space for me in this will probably bizarre ride to the far side, uh, which was, it's still my favorite hip hop album of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, maybe because of that, I never really thought about that before. It might be because that's the record that gave me license to rap and want to rap because it was silly and fun mm -hmm. and uh, self-deprecating and they talked about things that weren't on other rap records. It wasn't just like a street record about how tough it is to grow up in the city. Mm. And since I lived in a suburb on Long Island, uh, yeah, I, I didn't really think that I had any claim to, to rapping. So when I heard that record, I thought, oh shit, maybe a skateboarder could be a rapper. That could be a thing. And then I saw the cover of the Y'all So Stupid album Van for hey, Pakistan. Yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, I said, oh shit, he's wearing Vans. And, and th those were like the early records that made me feel like there was a place for me. I mean, I, I didn't feel so on the outside of what happened on De La Soul Records, on Tribe Records, uh, Black Sheep, like all those early Native Tongue records. I just thought they were so good. I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> Uh, and, and yeah and the far side album was so cartoonish and playful that it made me think well that's a way in i don't have to be this serious wordsmith amazing truth sayer mc i could be mm. funny mm. and and i think that was the reason why uh that record was different for me it didn't make me feel othered and an outsider in hip-hop it made me think you are welcome here right right um thank you for sharing that man um you know we're gonna jump around a little bit in your career because i feel like sure, sure there's different eras and there's uh you know certainly things to talk about but um speaking of um rap heroes from another planet um mf doom is a big favorite favorite of ours on the program and uh, obviously uh you know open mic night vaudevillain um, can you give us a little backstory on how that came to be? I can. I am a long-winded person, so I, I'm checking myself in this moment. <laughs> Lucky for you, this is a podcast, so yeah, man, yeah, no feel free to stretch out. I, I'm going to try to not do what I usually do. Okay, <laughs> so I love Jedi Mind Tricks records. They were one of the first indie rap groups I discovered. And I lived at the time at Penn State University where I had just graduated with my bachelor's in psychology. And I used to go to Philly once a month. I think it was either the first or the last Sunday of the month for an open mic night 
that they had at a store owned by Bobito Garcia called Footwork. And they would always have a featured act and then an open mic night leading up to it. Sometimes Quest Love would be the drummer in the open mic nights. I got to rap over Quest drumming before, which was fucking bananas. Wow. I traded I traded lines with Black Thought before, like freestyling. Um, and I was what, 20, 21 years old at the time. So that was pretty wild. Uh, but I met Vinny from Jedi Mind Tricks after one of those open mic nights. And the headliner was Jedi Mind Tricks, Seven L and Esoteric, and Virtuoso. Mm. And I had befriended L Fudge who at the time was on Raucous. And Fudge told me that he was really tight with Vinny. I'm a pretty good social navigator. So when I got Vinny alone and we were talking after the show, and I was like, that was unreal. I don't know how you do it. His stage presence and the power, I was just blown away. So I was saying some kind words to him about that. And then I made sure to work in, we have a mutual friend. Told him it was El Fudge. He was like, I love Fudge. Fast forward a year later, I'm living in Philadelphia. Vinny and I are more or less best friends. He was coming to my little one bedroom apartment in Powelton Village near Drexel University every day. Just drinking 40s out of a paper bag on my couch and showing up at my door with an armful of new 12 inch singles from like whatever indie rap and like hot major stuff was coming out. And I showed him my first single that I had made as a demo. There's a whole other convoluted crazy story about how that happened that I'm gonna spare you. But I ended up working with Super Regular, Jedi Mind Tricks okay. label for two singles. And then we started talking about an album. I didn't have a lot of producers. I just had JJ. Vinny said, let me introduce you to some people because he knew a lot of people. And the one kid he introduced me to was the first hipster I ever met. He was a white kid from like Ohio or, or Pittsburgh or some shit, or maybe he was from Philly, I don't know. Um, Jewish kid, glasses. He was a painter and a, a videographer and he made beats and like, he, he was a Renaissance man. He did everything. He was a vegetarian and I was like, what do you mean? You don't eat meat? Like, <laughs> I had never met anyone like him before. And my family is hella blue collar. And he started making beats with me. We made a bunch of demos. And he ended up doing a beat on my first album, Cinematic. Uh, it was the beat for the song Dust to Dust. It was like the last song on the album. Mm -hmm. And maybe a year after I recorded that stuff with him, but before the cinematic album had even come out, he reaches out to me and he's like, hey, I have this project that I'm doing with MF Doom. And I was like, what? And, and he was like, yeah, uh, me and some friends. And we were talking about guests and Doom said that he would like to have you on the record. And I was like, wow, wow, that's incredible. Are you kidding me? Like, 
And he, he was like, yeah, yeah. He said he likes this stuff. And I was like, this is fucking bananas. And he said, I mean, there's not a lot of money in it, but do you want to do it? And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I don't care about the money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Dude, like, and I'm like trying to fall asleep, you know, having just gotten that, that news, like banging greenbacks over and over again. Like, And then uh, I showed up to a studio in Brooklyn, like a little home studio with all these wool blankets hanging down in place of a, a vocal booth. And they told me that Doom called it the sweater. Uh, <laughs> he recorded in there too. He wasn't there the day that I recorded. but um, And then I tracked and I ended up recording to the beat that Doom raps on. Okay. On the studio version. Okay. But then when the when the actual thing came out, because they wanted to make it seem like an open mic night, my vocals were on a completely different beat, and that beat was done by the guy who did Dust to Dust. He called himself King Honey back then, but his name was Max. Uh, and so that's how I ended up being on the Vaudeville Villain album. But mm. I had met Doom before, mm. and I went to dinner with my ex girlfriend who was the head designer for Echo Unlimited's women's line, Echo Red. Mm. And one of her best friends was a woman who was like the hip hop editor for Complex Magazine. Mm. And I sat down across from mm. that woman from Complex Magazine and this guy she brought with her, dog skin brother, like, you know, kind of shortish. Uh, he had glasses on, baseball hat. He's quiet, but I recognized his voice when he spoke. And I was like, "Yo, are you an MC?" And he was like, "Yeah." And I was like, "What did you say your name was? Did you say Dan?" And he's like, "Yeah, Dan, Doom, Dan or Doom." And I was like, <laughs> "Do you mean like MF Doom?" And he was like, "Yeah." And I was like what the fuck? So like I ended up having <laughs> dinner with him like two, probably two years before at least maybe three three years before I ended wow. up getting That's crazy. That's crazy. But we, we did some tour dates together and you know I, I had a complex relationship with Doom. I was really heartbroken when I heard about what happened but right. yeah. you know you know, I can corroborate some of the villainy. Like he definitely did a few things to me that I was like Dude, what the fuck? <laughs> oh man, that's, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about a song off of Cinematic um, called the the Ugly Truth. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. No. <laughs> so so I remember this song from when it came out, and you know, it's like when we're about to do the interview, I, I want to go back through people's stuff, and I was like, damn. Uh, it's, it's very, very, very biting. Uh, I'm not going to ruin the, the punchline for folks who, who may not have heard it, but I wanted to ask you two things about that song. Number one, what was the response like when it came out back then? And number two, and feel free to sidestep this if it feels too spicy, <laughs> but, but did you feel like, uh, Joyner Lucas kind of cribbed it a little bit for um i don't know song. who that is so okay so i can answer number two now by saying no 
Okay. Perfect. Um, um, like way long ago, maybe 2005 or something. Or no, probably like 2008. I was on tour with these guys from the West Coast, from uh, Seattle, who were friends with Macklemore before he became a pop star. And they, they played me like some of his really old stuff before he got a big old deal. And, um, and he had a song where he was like talking with like a country accent and like saying all this racist shit. And I was like, this motherfucker, he stole my shit. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't, I mean, it wasn't true. Right, right, right. When you're a right. young man, you're a young ass man, or you're acting like one and you're making rap records maybe you don't have all that much perspective on these things. You have a tendency to cast dispersions at people who maybe have no idea who you are, who just happen to do something similar to what you do. Yeah, totally. totally. Uh, mm -hmm. Which I think is more often the case than not. I, I don't think a lot of people, especially not in rap, would outright intentionally bite somebody. Just the yeah. The stigma around it is so profound. It's just not worth it. Like, you know, maybe mimicking someone's style a little bit, I find, but like a straight up bite. Yeah. Like it's so frowned on. I can't picture somebody doing that on purpose. I don't know. Maybe people do that shit. People do a lot of fucked up stuff. What do I know? That, uh, that, that they do. But yeah. What, what was the response back, back then? And this um, was like, Oh, Oh five. Uh, well, the album came out in Oh three. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I actually wrote the song over the course of like maybe '99 to 2000 ish. Okay. Uh, so the song was already like three years plus old by the time it came out. And I think when I first got the idea, the aforementioned "He Who Shall Not Be Named" <laughs> was actually a governor. Yeah, but but there was speculation about you know it, a a bigger career ahead, uh, and so the idea of this song was just everyone who listens to those words in that song has heard those things before. You know everything that I've said in the song. You've heard it all. There's nothing new. No new ideas are introduced in that song. Mm -hmm. You gotta ask yourself, how is it that you're walking around? with all of this stuff intoned into your your yeah. hard drive, yeah. so to speak. It's not like a voluntary thing. Like you were like, I think I have decided to collect a lot of really ill views about the my, my neighbors and my fellow human beings. It just happens without your awareness. And worse than that, and this was the core thesis of the song, you would be surprised who you're surrounded by who maybe believes those things. Mm. Nowadays, there's nothing surprising about that idea, <laughs> given the changes in the socio-political climate right. over the last like 10. Well, I'm going to say it started maybe with Obama, where things got like out in the open. People stopped like alluding vaguely to these things, and the racism mm. just it just came out. <laughs> Like when the birtherism thing started, everybody right. was like, I'm not talking in code anymore. Fuck a dog whistle. I have a bullhorn now. <laughs> right. That's where um, we're at. So all, all this to say, people heard the song and there were mixed reactions because some people thought that I was a white guy. 
maybe because I am. And that was going to be my next question. Did, did people think you're a white guy kicking the. Yeah, maybe they thought I was a white guy because I enunciate or like maybe I don't have like the blackest black guy voice because I am biracial. Um, I don't know why, but uh, well, also this is like before social media. Yeah. So, yeah. so the likelihood that you knew what I looked like was not high before you encounter one of my songs. Probably you, you found the songs before you found my face. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anyway, um, then there were people who heard some of the song but never made it to the end. Ooh. And so there were whole like message board things, 30, 40 pages long of people being like, did y'all hear about this racist rap song? It's like a, a fucking skinhead rap song. And then other yeah. people would be jumping in and like defending me and saying, listen to the whole song, you dummy. <laughs> There's a point did, to the end. Did the people, did you find people liking it for the wrong reason? Mm-mm. Okay. There aren't a lot of rap fans who are like that. So no, I never really had like much of that. Uh, well, not like neo-Nazi rap fans anyway. Right, There's not right, a lot right. of that. Because those kind of guys, they're like, fuck rap music because it was born of black people. They would never get down with that anyway. And I'm like, little do you know, the same is true of rock and roll. um so and country shit you know yeah i think it's a a widely accepted fact that country was just born out of twangy ass blues so um it was more the case that like people misinterpreted the meaning behind the song for a small collection of reasons those being Mm -hmm. they thought Mm -hmm. i was white they hadn't heard the whole song or maybe they just didn't get the spirit of what i was trying to do because it was so graphic but that that was part of the idea i mean i was young as shit when i wrote that i think i was 24 Mm -hmm. you know so that was let me do math now this is not my strong suit (laughs) That was 23 years ago that I wrote that song. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, now that said, I, I don't, I never really encountered any overtly racist fans who were like, we love you because of the ugly truth. You're right. I mean, I think anybody who felt that way, if they did find the song and like it, once they saw me, were like, fuck this. Like, <laughs> I might be light-skinned, but I cannot pass for white. <laughs> um, and so uh, something that did happen, though, over the course of my rap career that I observed, and, and I would imagine that this is worse now because of how all the racists are just coming out of the shadows and being like, I'm hanging my freak flag high. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I was really surprised over the course of my career to discover how many of the white fans and artists had some seriously fucked up racist ass tendencies. Mm. I guess it shouldn't be that surprising. I was just too young and trusting to Mm. assume something like that. But there is something about appreciation for hip-hop there's like a strain of it 
that is like safari and this isn't even my idea mm-hmm. uh, i don't like taking credit for ideas that are not mine a white friend of mine soul uh pointed this out to me and he was just like these young hipster kids they don't like smart rap anymore they're not into aesop rock and atmosphere and sage francis anymore they like hella hood shit mm-hmm. he was like it's like safari they want to find the most exotic biggest scariest animal and yeah. so like P- pitchfork stop paying attention to like nerd rap and backpack shit there was a stretch where this was true it's not true anymore i don't think there are really many rules these days like you can do whatever the fuck you know and it just kind of flies if, if people like it that's all that matters if you're getting eyeballs and ears then you know there's, there's not a whole lot of barrier to entry for like press coverage or or uh popularity but right. back then it was different there were gatekeepers and uh pitchfork just kind of did a hard turn that i think was really representative of this weird strain of latent racism baked into the white hip-hop appreciator cake mm. and man, thank you and it, it it was a a really dark thing to reconcile for me as somebody who is like a, a survivor of some pretty intense race-based traumatic stress and in a legit hate crime that happened to me when i was in high school um you know, all mostly born out of the fact that I was adopted by a white family and grew up in places with all white people. Mm. Uh, Like most of my black friends have not had the kind of racist experiences I've had, even though they look way blacker than I do because they grew up in neighborhoods with other black people. Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like when I read autobiography of Malcolm X the first time and I came across that line, I got called a nigger so much, I started to think it was my name, I was like, yeah wow but but i don't know a lot of black people who've had that experience because most Mm. of the black people i know grew up in black neighborhoods with a black family you know or at least in a neighborhood where there were other black people it was fucking Mm. nobody Mm. i was single-handedly desegregating schools (laughs) playgrounds local swimming pools (laughs) it was a brutal way to grow up and this is in the 70s and 80s yeah so that was that was pre-political correctness, which yeah. gets a very bad rap, kind of unfairly. Like I was a beneficiary of political correctness in so much as when that shit started, I felt a difference between what my life was like pre-political correctness and post. Huh. People were not so cool about coming up to me and saying the N-word to my face. Yeah. It had changed. Because there was a shame and a social stigma to that kind of thing. You had to right. be a pretty fucked up person, more or less a sociopath, to do something like that post-political correctness. correctness. But before it, man, I heard that word kicked around so much you wouldn't believe it. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm super intense and just very um, honest and bare. I really, really appreciate that. Um, just want to move forward a little bit, you know, back to the music and back to uh, your career. Um, you know, we spoke on cinematic. We're huge fans. I love the cut of Fairweather fans, actually. But I want to move forward and talk a little bit about what you've been doing since and, you know, what we can expect from you and your and your uh, artistic process these days. Well, thank you for asking, Dave. Um, I guess it wasn't really a question, but um, 
Yeah, I would love to talk about that. Uh, do you want to know my thoughts about what happens like after the cinematic misery loves comedy era? Or are we talking like, what am I up to in 2022? I would say a little bit of both of that, something that um, bridges the gap. Bridges the gap, too. yeah. Okay, yeah, let's go chronological. So after Misery Loves Comedy, I got this dumb idea in my head that I was going to bring a new level of musicality to rap that I thought was missing and start taking voice lessons and piano lessons and learn to play an instrument and maybe be a part of the small collection of rappers in the early aughts, mid-aughts, who were bringing live music elements into what they were doing in a way that said, the future of MCing is you'll be dope on the mic and you'll know how to play at least one instrument and you'll understand music theory and be able to read sheet music. I had this vision of that. In my mind, it was altruistic, but the reality of it was it was an ego mission and I thought I was going to change the face of hip hop. Uh, I didn't do that. I, I alienated a lot of my fans who were like, what the fuck? I didn't pay 13 bucks to come here and see you like stumble your way through piano songs. Get up there and do the ugly truth. <laughs> um, so then my solution for that was I'm going to learn the ugly truth on piano. And, and I, I started playing that live, like at the shows on keys. Um, and then like to bring more people in, I learned to do a cover of Biz, play piano and, and rap for Just a Friend. Um, and then just expanding it out and doing more. And, and eventually I got to a point where I was writing completely new songs that were not on any of the records that were just keyboard songs and sometimes playing those. And I stopped making records for seven years uh, between the release of Misery Loves Comedy. I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. I stopped making Lewis Logic records for okay. seven years so that I could focus on learning how to play piano and to sing and learning music theory and then try to use those tools in a record at some point. It took me seven years to get to a place of comfort with it that I was able to do that. And in 2013, I released the Misery Loves Comedy, I'm sorry, the, the Look on the Blight Side album, mm. uh, which was my first ever self-produced record. I had never made a single beat before I made the first beat for the first song that I made for that album. Mm. Um, so the first beat that I ever made ended up being on a record. Um, and it was for the song Bet the Farm on the Look on the Blight Side album. But I mean, I, at that point, I had been writing like singer songwriter and indie pop style songs, you know, like trying to do my impression of, uh, you know, like the shins or like Death Cab for Cutie. <laughs> um, and in the interim, I did some side projects. I had a band in Copenhagen, Denmark called Fork Kills that was like a fusion project like surf and uh, like Afrobeat and Eastern European Balkan music with rap. Like it was a really kooky project, but like so fucking catchy. Um, if you haven't heard any of it, I recommend digging it up because I, I, you might be surprised like how relevant the sound that we did in 2006 to like 2009 is okay. today. 
like, but back then people were like, what, you can't do that. Um, and uh, we, we had like a quick brush with Sony Columbia where I thought like, oh shit, we're gonna sign a deal with, with Sony Columbia and four kills is gonna be like my, my, my new thing. Like my wife and I were talking about moving to Denmark and shit, like it was, it was a wild time. And then I met Chesky Ramos, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the founder of Fake Four and a fucking ridiculously talented MC singer and songwriter. Um, to me, like probably the most proficient musician from the rap tradition that there is. Like he can do anything. This dude is a superhero. Um, maybe you don't love his pace level or whatever, like his aesthetics, but like he is tough to find like a, a comparable to him. Um, so we befriended each other and I felt a lot less lonely as a rapper who cared about like singer, songwriter, music and learning to play instruments and shit when I found him. So then we toured all over the world together for like two years. Um, non-stop from 2010 through 2012 um, so yeah I guess that's three years um, and then I did the look on the blind side record in 13 on fake four and after that like the last year of my career that was like really active where I was out touring and stuff it was a tough year for me man like I just started to reconcile with the idea that the changing landscape of music the aging out of my core audience, the alienating of chunks of my audience by doing so much experimentation and not being the kind of guy who pumps out content. It made my career like slowly start to atrophy and it got to a place where uh, it just wasn't viable to live off of. And my wife, who was then my fiance, was like, I don't even know why we're engaged you're never going to have enough money to marry me. And I was like, oh. ouch. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was like two months behind on my, she's a really sweet lady. I made her sound like she was evil. She is no, not no, evil. No, no. She, Legit. She was, trying to, she was trying to do me a kindness. She was like, look, you don't even like your career anymore. You bitched about it nonstop. You're two months behind on the mortgage. You save nothing towards the wedding. Every year you tour another extra month more to try to close the gap in your earnings you're touring more and you're earning less mm. she was like this year you did like nine months you're going to do 10 months next year and then 11 the following and then in two years you'll be the only person living a 13 month year and i was like all right all right <laughs> so i she was like you're gonna to have to get a regular job and i was i was crying and shit standing outside of this venue the farm in las vegas and um I stopped touring uh, after my last tour with Psalm One uh, okay. in 2014, and I studied for the real estate licensing exam, and I became a real estate agent, uh, and I was really good at it because I'd been okay. everywhere, so I could make conversation with someone from whatever the fuck city and be like, oh, you're from Cincinnati? I love Melt. And they're like, oh, yeah. man, Melt is my shit. Like, <laughs> like, wherever you were from, I knew something about your place. Oh, um, so I was, I was, I was really successful. And, and then like the drinking and the drugging thing just got like way out of hand. Ironically, it wasn't when I was like touring. The yeah. I was going to say, it wasn't the rapping, the rap life that did that. No. It was real estate. See, see, those I mean, are the ones you got to watch out for. 
<laughs> the wrapping was like a real proving ground for me as a burgeoning alcoholic because it's a safe place to hide. Nobody said shit to me about how much I drank. And even if they did, it didn't matter because I was like the headliner and like, hey, fuck you. <laughs> so so I, I, uh, I'm nicer than that. But point being like, I did not heed any of the warnings or cautioning about my drinking as an active alcoholic and rapper. It was a pretty easy place to hide my burgeoning alcoholism. And then when I started doing real estate, like the party was over. Because when you're touring, it's like going to a party in your honor every single night. Mm. You show up in a new city and everyone's so excited you're there and they give you all of their booze and drugs and sex. And they're just like here, um, which I, I was all about that. That was great. Um, and, and then when I started doing real estate, like there was no party. It was just like making money. And then like, you know, my wife at home being like, where the fuck are you all hours of the night? And so I just kind of built a party around myself. Like the mm-hmm. analogy that I always use is, you remember Pigpen from the Peanuts with the dust cloud <laughs> just rolled him? with it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was me. But the cloud of dust was booze, cocaine, and sex with strangers. So if you came anywhere near me, you were going to get it on you. Um, (laughs) I I was just like a walking party, like in the bars of Brooklyn and New York City. And I was still making music, like in my spare time here and there. It's really hard to make music in a productive way when your full-time job is staying drunk and fucked up and like Mm. chasing strangers to have sex with. Uh, And keeping it from your wife is even harder. Like it, you know. Um, I had a dual life, man. I was the, the, you know, anybody who's heard me on a podcast before has probably heard this, but I was like a brown tattooed Don Draper. Like I, I made good ass <laughs> money, uh, but I, I had a double life and my poor wife did not, she suspected, but like she, she didn't know the truth of who she was married to. And then in 2017, um, I, got a phone call from my wife while she was out of town. And she was like, who the fuck is this person who emailed me? And I was like, I don't know who the fuck that is. And she started reading the email and I was like, oh shit, I do know who that is. She's crazy. I'm gonna lie my way out of this. And my wife said, before you open your mouth, there's some screen grabs. And I was like, oh, like frozen. And she started reading the screen grabs and reading my flirtatious language back mm-hmm. to me that I had written oh, at the wow. time. And it was very disarming. And I, I said something honest for the first time and who knows how fucking long. And I was like, everything she said is true. And I cried and I begged and pleaded for another chance, which she promised me a couple hours into this hellish phone call that she would give me. Then she came home and the inquisition started. <laughs> who else? How many times? Where? When? And I just I confessed to like a fucking rap sheet worth of offenses against my best friend. But eventually she got to the wrong question and I said yes to that question. It was about a specific person that she fucking hated. And I was like, and then she went ballistic and our house turned into the lemonade movie and she just slow motion, like tearing all of our shit apart. And um, I stopped drinking right around then okay um so may 19th of 2017 i was white knuckle sober for two days until she caught me hiding in my car one day in the rain 
And I, I wasn't looking up at the time and I heard someone go, fuck you, motherfucker. And I looked up and my wife was standing in the middle of the street with two middle fingers up. <laughs> and my Damn. neighbors were like looking up from under their umbrellas like, oh, shit. <laughs> like I was, I was getting wow. fucking red right there on the street. Interestingly, my marriage survived uh, all the abuse that I, I put my wife through emotional abuse and flying and like gaslighting not physical abuse thank god I, I'm, i've never been a violent alcoholic uh, but a dishonest lying cheating one check um, <laughs> so uh when i first got sober like i couldn't go into my studio it was yeah. too triggering so i have a home studio and like i collect vintage keyboards i got a rose in there and a farfisa and a pump organ uh, like a 1930s era Baldwin upright spinet, like all kinds of awesome key instruments, um, you know, monitors and a, uh, and a board and interface, all that shit. And um, I just, I couldn't go in there because like that's where I used to sit, like drinking whiskey and like mm. doing Coke, like off of a mirror. And like, um, I just decided like, I'm going to stay out of there for now. Because it was mm-hmm. too triggering, and um, it took me eight months before I went back in there. Uh, maybe maybe like seven months, um, and I ended up writing my first song in sobriety, and it was like a uh, like a pretty convincing replica of like a '60s soul pop song okay. that I wrote that I wrote for my wife called "The Wash." Um, I went on actually to have Jay Zone replace my demo drums and and play. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I, I got this guy, uh, Toast, who's a really popular indie rock artist, uh, to play trumpet on. He's a friend of mine from Brooklyn. Um, and like build out a soul horn section. Um, so then I started making like soul pop songs, you know, but like throwback shit. Uh like trying to do it as authentically as I could. Um and then yeah, and I kind of missed rap music and like somebody was I kept getting messages over the years people would be like my Facebook like band page thing inbox probably has 10 years of ignored money just sitting in it <laughs> people yeah. being like oh what do you want for a guest appearance and I just ignored it um and then like there was like a few really persistent people who just never stopped writing to me this French guy who's like, come on, Louis. Broken English. Louis! (laughs) But self-titled and magic voice, come on. And eventually I I, I started missing it. And I was like, I wonder if I could do this sober. You know, Mm. I I wrote back to that French kid and was like, you've been writing me for years. I'm really sorry I ignored your messages. Do you still want to do a guest appearance with me? And he was like, "Oh my God, Lou! I can't believe it." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I ended up doing a song with him that Self and Magic Most are on. So he got his his wish. Um, I did a song with this kid from Vermont called Stressful D that had blue on it. Oh, um, of, of blue and exile fame and. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, I don't know, maybe I will make another rap record. Uh, but I was in the middle of a book 
Okay. So, so I think this is like a good way to like put a cap on the, the, the response to like the different artistic journeys I took after my real heyday, you know, of like cinematic and misery love comedy days. Um, and uh, this guy reached out to me. <clears throat> he kept calling me because this was like when I was a real estate agent. My wife is pregnant um, with our son. And uh, we were in LA on a, a baby moon. I, I was like, what the fuck is a baby What's moon? What's a baby moon? Yeah. It's the last trip you go on before you oh, have before. a baby. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Because after you have a baby, it's a lot harder to do that shit. Truth. So we're in LA for the LA Film Festival because my wife had a film in it that she had shot. And um, we did a trip up the coast to the Avenue of the Giants and the Redwoods and like camps and shit. And, like, it was really fun. I, I met up with JJ for the first time in like 10 years. Mm. And uh, I, I made an amend mm -hmm. to him for like the wrongs that, that occurred like toward the end of our our partnership dissolving and uh i kept getting a phone call from this number and i was like oh it's probably a real estate thing but they weren't leaving a message and then they finally left the message and i had been bitching all day about how i wasn't really a musician or an artist anymore i was just a real estate agent like really in self-pity feeling sorry for myself <laughs> and uh i play the message this guy leaves over the car stereo of our rental car and this guy is like hey my name's Tom. I'm the manager of Mysterious Bookshop in Soho. We're like the most famous, oldest, biggest crime fiction bookstore in the world. I'm looking for Lewis Logic. I was a big fan of your records, and I used to read your column in Elemental Magazine. I have a publishing opportunity I want to discuss with you. My wife's like punching me in the leg, like, hey, babe, <laughs> it's your higher power. You are still an artist. Say wow, yes. And, I, and I'm like, what? This is fucking crazy. So I call the guy back, and I'm like, I'm in LA on my baby moon. He's like, what's a baby moon? And I was like, never mind. <laughs> and then I, I come back and I meet up with him and he reiterates everything in the message. And he's like, have you ever thought about writing a novel? And I was like, yeah, of course. You know, like anyone with a fucking ego as size, the size of a house has thought about writing a novel. And like, that's me. So yes. Um, but, you know, I don't think I could do it. And he was like, I don't know. I've, I've read your, your work before, like your columns, like you have on the page prose like you could do it mm. are, you, are you interested and I was like I don't know I guess and he was like do you like crime fiction and I was like I don't know and he was like do you like noir books like detective stories and I was like not sure if I've ever read one but I've seen mm. some movies I really like Brick the the, <laughs> the uh what's his name Ryan um I can't, I can't believe I'm not thinking of this right now. My wife is actually in Nevada working on one of his shoots right now. <laughs> you blocked it out. I didn't block it out. I actually really love this fucking guy's stuff. It's not Ryan Reynolds. I'm Gosling? About him. No, it's not Ryan Gosling. <laughs> That's all my Ryans. Secrets. <laughs> I, I, I'm so annoyed with myself right now. I'm actually a really big fan of this guy's stuff. Uh... Ryan Johnson, Ryan Johnson. Mm. I didn't have to Google it. Ryan Johnson. So he did Brick and Looper, which I fucking love. That was like mm. my favorite sci-fi movie of the 2000s. Um, <clears throat> and then he did uh, a couple of the Star Wars prequels. Um, so uh, he did the last one, whatever that one was. I can't remember the name. Um, he's a fucking awesome writer director. Oh, he did Knives Out. Um, mm. Okay. 
And I'm so that guy, he, he's fucking sick, man. Like such a good writer. And so uh, I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I, lo- I like Looper and Brick. Those are like noir stories. He's like, totally. And I was like, oh, wait, I did read Pulp by Charles Bukowski in my Bukowski phase. That was a noir story. He was like, definitely a classic noir story. And I was like, okay, <clears throat> yeah, I guess I do kind of like stuff like that. And he was like, well, look, the publishing opportunity is to write a crime fiction book we're doing um, some reissues of like out of print favorites. We're gonna do like one or two books by like established authors and we wanna do one first timer. And I think Mm. you would make a good first time author. And I was like, what? (laughs) And then I was like, you know what? Fuck it, man. Like, I guess this is kind of a higher power moment. I'll just say yes. And then a month later I sent him a, a writing sample and he was like, wow, this is really good. It's like better than the quality of the deal that I offered you do you want me to be your agent? I could get you a bigger publishing deal. And I was like, okay. And then wow. for the next three three years, we worked on this book together. Well, I did most of the work on the book, but he would like, you know, workshop it with me. Like when I had like roadblocks or whatever. Um, and I finished my first draft in December of 21. And I finished my second draft like a couple of months ago, um, okay. right before I, right before I started grad school, which I'm in currently. Oh, okay, okay. To earn my MSW, uh, Master in Social Work, because I'm gonna be a psychotherapist when this is over. Um, awesome. Of, of which there are too few like me, by which I mean, you know, black men. It's really also hard rappers. Black male therapists. Yeah, there's, there's not, not enough rapper either. therapists, yeah. <laughs> right, so all this to say, um, I've been doing a lot. Which is yeah. why I said that when you asked. Yeah. Um, and my agent and I are getting ready to uh, start sending my manuscript out to see if we can actually score this bigger publishing deal. Okay. He thinks my book is good enough for, but we, we shall see. I'll report wow. back to you. Okay. So I, say, I did write a crime fiction book. Um, it's, it's like uh, maybe 120,000 words or so, a little less. Um, it's uh, it's like a sci-fi crime okay. fiction book okay. about an al- about an alcoholic who is obviously an analog of myself, um, and it's, it's twenty thirty seven, and it has been scientifically proven and corroborated that there is a secondary consciousness in each of us that we come to understand as evidence of the existence of a soul therefore the afterlife and in the wake of this discovery an alcoholic's ex-fiance a famous energy clean energy heiress becomes the first ever victim of a soul murder sending him on a quest to figure out who did it and how um so yeah okay it's it's really cool man i got to invent like a futuristic drug called archangel that like makes you feel like you're falling and like you get the high of like in rush of like skydiving um yeah it's, it's awesome man it's really fun man, uh so, when you when you when you started to bridge the gap i had no idea of, of how many different things you had been involved with and kind of where 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 you were sitting these days but um yeah man it's 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 great to hear about your journey uh and i feel I'm like uh, and i'm a dad yeah i was about to say I got, it, I got, I got, <laughs> I got a three-year-old son. His name is Dash. Um, that's, that's and he, man. He's fucking rad, man. He's like, he's so dope. He's, well, so we he's love a, it here. He, he's, on, 
<laughs> he's hilarious. So I actually do have a dad bod. Uh, so ah, says, I have a I have a bod and I'm a dad. I don't know that what's underneath these clothes would qualify though as like you know like meme, meme culture definition of a dad of a, of a dad bod. Yeah, Dave Dave yeah. does the same the same exception. Well, he's not even a dad, but he's on the podcast. So we 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 we're an inclusive podcast of all types of dads. Uh, Lewis okay. Logic, it's been great to chop it up with you, man. Thanks yeah, you so much thank for you making so the time. Thank you so much for asking me. I appreciate your time and your ears. Dad bod rap pod. That was our conversation with Lewis Logic. Man, he really uh, opened up and and shared about his personal journey. We're real thankful that he he made the time and was really vulnerable enough to speak with us about some pretty heavy things. But uh, glad to hear he's on a good track in his life. Has exciting projects coming up. And again, we just want to thank him for coming on the program. As you probably already know, you can connect with the Dad Bod Rap Pod on Twitter at Dad Bod Rap Pod, on Instagram at Dad Bod Rap Pod. And if you really, really, really rocking with this, you can subscribe to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Dad Bod Rap Pod, where we post all kinds of extra fly content. Nate's radio show, The Fly Sporadic, my playlist series, Dems Gems. We post commentary, give a fans a chance to talk back to us in that space. So, you know, if you're really rocking with this, it really helps the program. Only $5 a month or $51 a year will give you that player price, $9 discount. Uh, if you sign up, once again, that's patreon.com slash dadbod rap pod uh just want to remind everybody especially californians that we will be at the happiness of pursuit festival on saturday october 1st uh, it's going to be a dope festival headlining is reason the far side open mike eagle will be there i hear merce has a whole stage uh we got a little setup backstage and we're going to be interviewing and talking to as many people as we can so, you know, pull up. It's uh, thop.net for all the ticket information. Uh, you know, we back outside. Pandemic over, right? We back outside. Let's, uh, let's get out there and connect. But, uh, you know, we just keep pushing along. Every Thursday, new episodes. We are the Dad Bod Rap Pod. Logic. He's one of my newest, closest friends. Please welcome him on stage. Woo!